I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by co-deputy editor of Film Comment Magazine, film writer and critic, Devika Girish. Stay tuned. Just like music, movies and cinema have gratefully been sort of a cultural chronicle for me. I actually remember watching movies in a drive-in with my parents, taking the bus to go see trading places with my friends, having varapao and a thumbs up with relatives watching a Hindi movie in India, getting introduced to art and indie films when I was at Berkeley, watching Pulp Fiction with my med school classmates in New York, and my wife and I now taking the kids to our local theater here in the East Bay. And with the access of quite a bit online and watching from literally anywhere, cinema and movie content has never been more accessible. Movies and the experiences around them are so linked to memories. And so to dive into this world a little bit deeper, it was terrific to catch up with film writer and critic Devika Girish. Devika is the co-deputy editor of Film Comment Magazine, and she's a contributor to the New York Times and the Village Voice. Her work has been recognized with a 2018 National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Award and a 2019 Southern California Journalism Award, among other honors. Devika grew up in Nagpur, came of age in Providence, Rhode Island, and now calls New York City her home. But as she describes it, her permanent passionate home is in front of a screen. We chatted about her journey and outlook, but started with what discoveries she's made during the pandemic, about film, and about herself. Particularly when it comes to film and cinema, what discoveries or, or even rediscoveries did you make about film and, and maybe even about yourself? It's such a mix of emotions and realizations because I think it's been a very tough year of loss and distance from loved ones and, you know, lack of the kind of social interaction that really fuels me. And not just on a personal level, but professionally, too. I mean, I work in the movies. Yeah. New York's movie theaters only started reopening a couple of weeks ago. And that, too, just a few. You know, I mean, we're, we're slowly ramping up here. It's completely changed the landscape of my work and my relationship with movies. Um, it kind of made me realize, I think, writing is a very solitary job. I write and edit, which... Editing is less solitary than writing, but they're both still, you know, fairly, I would say, interior um, mm. just jobs. And but it made me realize that what makes writing worth it, because it can be really tortuous, is that it's often like reflecting on a collective experience, even though even if I'm movie, watching a movie in a movie theater and a movie theater is the perfect example of a space that's both in which you're both alone and together, you know, because you don't necessarily know the people around you. You're anonymous to them often. And even if you go with friends, it's not generally an experience unless you're watching a Bollywood movie in, in a theater in <laughs> India, right? Where, where you're interacting with the people around you. So it's like this cu curious blend of being, it's like being alone together, you know, yeah. with, with others. I realized like how important that experience is and how important, even though 
I've been watching movies on my laptop. You know, we everyone shifted to a digital model. Festivals became virtual. Uh, publicists started to send digital screeners. I've been watching everything at home. And the movie, you know, you would think that whether I watch a movie in a theater or on a small screen, like the movie remains the same. But that's not true. And not just because the experience is different, not just because the screen is larger, because all the other things that happen while I'm watching a movie in a theater, like when I'm taking the subway, the people I'm meeting along the way, the people I'm talking to as I'm exiting, all the other experiences of the day that collide into the experience of watching actually influences the experience of writing. And, you know, then, so not having that, honestly, I will say was a bit depressing. <laughs> so has that made a shift for you? Has, do you view the, the art of, of cinema differently now? Um, I wouldn't say that I necessarily view it differently, but I have had to come to terms with the fact that a lot of the movies I've been reviewing and discussing this last year were not made to be seen the way I saw them. Mm. And I have to say that watching at home is not necessarily an anomaly for a critic. So I think it's more that I have to operate with that caveat in mind that this director or this uh, filmmaker, filmmaking team did not intend for their images to be consumed in this way. So now what do I do with that, you know? And the other thing is really appreciating not just the time-based, but the space-based nature of the medium. What is most frustrating to me about watching on a small screen is this is the same screen that I use to check my email, to Zoom <laughs> with work colleagues, yeah. to watch TV. I mean, to do everything, right? And it's very hard then to separate it from those things. As, as disciplined as I might be, I can't ignore the doorbell. I can't ignore a phone call. I can't, you know, resist the temptation to just go my, make myself a sandwich while I'm watching, yeah. you know? And so it's it's kind of recognizing that film appreciating film actually requires a, a discipline a, you know it's and i think that's something that and i don't mean that to say like film is not just entertainment it's something i must subject myself to but actually experiencing art in ways that can really expand yourself so sense of self mm -hmm. requires submitting to conditions that maybe you in your daily life are not voluntarily used to submitting yourself. What that also brings to mind is, I think, uh, identifying all the things that have gone away, right? That, you know, we, we don't have that same experience of going to a theater. We, we have the opportunity to pause something and making yourself a sandwich in the middle of a movie theater is just not possible. <laughs> but has the access, has the ability to do this um, you know, with some comfort, has it brought some additions? Has it brought some, mm -hmm. has there been some value to any of this in some way that was perhaps unexpected? <sighs> you know, <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> well, I, the thing is, I don't want to be so uh, negative or sound like a Luddite or, you know, one of those people who's sure. like, ah, it's a purist. But I know that for a lot of folks, the virtual uh, shift has increased access greatly and in many yeah. ways making uh, different kinds of cinema accessible in places away uh, 
that are not close to the metropolises where art cinema or repertory cinema can usually be found. I work with the, you know, I work at the New York Film Festival and we did our first virtual edition, a, a hybrid edition of combining drive-ins and, and virtual screenings last year. For the, it was the first time the New York Film Festival was national and there was a yeah. lot of great feedback from, you know, people all over the country just uh, being able to watch all these gems of world cinema on their laptops. So that's right. a big thing and often more affordably, you know, than um, yeah. an in-person festival. I will never begrudge anything that brings good cinema to more people more cheaply, more accessibly. Right. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, it's tough. It's when there is so much online, when all the boundaries are dissolved, when it's just flattened and, you know, small festivals and indie theaters are competing with corporate streaming services. Right. That's a very difficult situation for the people who make movies uh, yeah. without, you know, those kinds of big institute, big institutions or corporations backing them. The people yeah. who distribute movies, it's very difficult for them to sustain themselves. Yeah. So, so these independent, um, you know, artists and and filmmakers, you know, certainly have, you know, a lot more competition. Does and I'm I'm just curious about one thing because I wonder if then in that way everything because it's both accessibly easy but it's also disposable does yeah. our does our experience of the memory of that film or that art you know now change and and i'm sure like some of this is you know still remains to be seen as we re-expand and, and re-energize our efforts to get back in theaters and that kind of thing too yeah i mean i think that memories are very central to the experience of cinema viewing i mean in a sense films live on in their memories and the films are appealing most strongly to your memory, right? They're, they're trying to like imprint themselves into your mind and the experience of film viewing, if you look at it philosophically or theoretically, people compare that to the process of memory creation or reliving memories, right. like the way the theater is structured. And I have to say these, the most vivid impression of a movie that I still have, uh, you know, over the last many months is one of the last movies I saw in a movie theater in Berlin called mm. Days uh, by Simon Liang. And there's nothing I have watched since then that has superseded that, that has managed to shake those images. I mean, there is nothing that I have watched at home or on my projector that has managed to leave an equivalent impact. Well, and that, that, that experience that you saw a movie in Berlin, not necessarily two blocks from your house, you know, that that imprint that it has and carries, carries a lot of weight. And, you know, it brings me to another thought. And that is, you know, as someone who is really deep and, and, and certainly entrenched in film and cinema, both personally and professionally, what are some of your memories of film then either growing up or in, in some of your more formative years? How how have those memories now, how do you compare and contrast those to what's going on now? And and maybe how did they uh, inform your journey of, of becoming a film critic in the first place? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I didn't grow up thinking that I would work in movies. I, I was a big reader. I came into movies through reading because uh, my parents are big magazine junkies. They would like 
subscribe to every Indian magazine and one, my brother and I each got one uh, American magazine subscription. My brother got National Geographic and I got time. You know, it was like our parents like deciding, um, you know, kind of one legacy magazine that would serve our interests. And my brother would save uh, the folded maps uh, that (laughs) in National Geographic, he was very interested in that sort of thing. Yeah. And I would start reading Time Magazine from the back end where all the reviews would start, you know, the criticism pages. Uh, Richard Corliss was the critic, the film critic then for Time. Um, He later became, or or, sorry, earlier, not later. uh, When he was in his 20s, he was the editor of Film Comment Magazine, where I work now. So it's like really this uh, (laughs) incredible full circle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I would read and I would often be reading about movies that I hadn't seen, that I had no way of seeing, you know. Um, I also loved reading Tehelka, which is this Indian leftist magazine. Um, They also had a fabulous criticism section that introduced me to reading films through a political lens. Um, And it's really reading that then got me interested in movies because I sort of realized that movies were a great way of understanding culture, understanding the world we live in. Mm. And that's what I wanted to study when I went to college at first is I wanted to study political science or sociology. And I just quickly realized that media studies was actually a very good way of understanding politics and society. So that was the route. And, you know, the funny thing is when I was growing up in Nagpur, I mean, there's two or three multiplexes. There's some small screen theaters, which also, you know, we stopped going to after a while when the multiplex became the default. Yeah. Um, We watched a lot of movies at those small screen theaters with my family. I mean, even though my family wasn't big on movies, it's India. You can't ex- escape movies. You can't yeah. escape Bollywood. But there was no access to so-called foreign cinema, you know, beyond Hollywood blockbusters. There was really no art cinema. You know, now multiplexes actually do play some of the, the indie uh, Indian movies. Sure. But back then, nothing at all. So, you know, I... I sometimes I'm like, I don't know how I ended up doing this. And I (laughs) pinch myself that I live in a city where there's like a rep theater in every neighborhood. But my love for cinema really came from that place of scarcity because I was reading about movies. I was making mental lists of movies that I didn't have access to, but that I wanted to see. And I was... To be honest, I was like downloading things off the internet when I was in high school. That's what people were doing in India, you know, downloading TV shows. We were starting to get stuff on TV, right? You had channels on TV that would show uh, American TV shows and movies. And then, you know, me and my friends were downloading stuff and I was watching stuff on my laptop all day. And, you know, know? I wonder if that scarcity, because that's such a contrast with the incredible universal access of of now right does do you have some nostalgia for that scarcity at all does it feel like you know the intellectual curiosity that it brings because you have a longing to now investigate and and find out about things that are perhaps not necessarily accessible and do you even have any nostalgia for that for that time of you know bollywood in the multiplex um from growing up Definitely have nostalgia for watching Bollywood in a movie theater growing up because 
going with my friends or with my family, those were, I mean, those are just these, it's so unique, the experience of watching movies in a theater in India. I haven't been in a little while now, so I don't know how it's changed, but, uh, you know, I feel like with multiplexes becoming the default, there's also kind of class barrier that's created and multiplexes become the domain of the middle and upper class viewers. And then single screen theaters become the domain of uh, the working class. And so I'm very curious how that's changed uh, in theater behavior. I haven't had a chance to experience it. But growing up, I mean, people hooting when the stars came on the screen, people dancing when the hit songs played just something so joyous to it and so different from the decorum that especially I will say like film critics and cinephiles in the U.S. expect, you know, off the movie theater experience, like no noise, you must be totally committed to this silent, sacred experience. That's that's not what it was like, but movies right. were no less sacred, right? Yeah. Like you had that relationship with the screen. So I miss and, that and it's a lot. The you had that relationship with the audience, too. Exactly. Yeah. And the only time I feel like I've had that, well, sometimes in festivals, you know, when, you know, you kind of see a movie for the first time with the crowd, it's it's great fun. Yeah. But I did see a screening of The Room, a room, what is the Tommy Wiseau film okay. um, in Los Angeles one time. It was like this, they have these like weekend midnight screenings where, because it's like one of those films that's so bad, it's good. You know, it's a <laughs> cult bad film. Sure. So people like throw spoons at the screen and enact yeah. the dialogues. And I watched that. I sat there and I was like, this is what, this is the closest I can come to that, you know, yeah. collective joy. It's, um, your, it's your Rocky Horror, uh, you know, sort exactly, of. Exactly, exactly. I can't feel nostalgic for the scarcity part of it because, as I said, it is incredible to live in a city where you have such a bounty of, you know, options to choose from, where you're exposed to, you know, cinema from so many different places, from periods of history. It's broadened my mind and my life in ways that, you know, I, I just can't even have imagined. Right. But the one thing... I wouldn't say it's the scarcity. I think it's more that we have a lot more access now online. It's not necessarily curated. Mm. You know, it's algorithmic. You know, when you look at these streaming services, it's not, it lacks that element of human curation. And also, it's a big dump of content because a lot of these services, what they care about is not what you're watching, just that you are, you watching, are watching, right? Right. Whether you're doing your laundry, whether you're cooking, that you just have something on. Yeah. And honestly, sometimes it feels like the less absorbing it is, the better, because then you're more likely to just leave it on, right? Like right. we all have that. Okay. I'm just going to put on something trashy on one yeah. of these services and do my chores you know and in your development almost uh through this as a as a professional film critic and a writer is there one film that really made you come of age as a professional one is Abbas Kirasami's close-up um it's an Iranian film from 1990 that I saw in college and Kirasami is one of my favorite filmmakers ever um that really changed things for me and maybe is the film that made me realize that film was something like cinema was something that could keep me interested forever mm. um and partly because he's 
I, I think like I could talk for multiple podcasts about you know how amazing uh kiddasami is so i won't get into that i'll just say trust me you've never seen anything like it okay. if, if you haven't heard of this film this filmmaker you have to check it out yeah and watching his films in college was the first time i saw something that looked like it came from my part of the world mm. being regarded with that much seriousness i'll just mention one other film so as to not uh, go on and on um, med hondos mm -hmm. uh soleil o med hondo was a mauritanian uh, french filmmaker he made a lot of really uh powerful incredible formally inventive movies about post-colonialism and the diaspora you know the post-colonial uh, diaspora experience in France and Europe. And he has this film called Soleil O about um, an, you know, an immigrant from uh, post-colonial Africa, you know, Francophone Africa, who moves to Paris in search of work and has this, you know, confronts what it means, like, you know, what the experience of kind of uh, coming to the place that all your life is held up as the beacon, the metropole, you know, right. the destination, and you get there and you realize how that place sees you. Yeah. And that was another film that to me um, helped me kind of make sense of my own uh, right. cinephilia and upbringing and my arrival to the States. Obviously, it's different uh, generationally, geographically, but again, like opened my eyes to what cinema can do in terms of uh capturing these experiences that i think we're all still grappling with you know mm -hmm. i think uh things like colonialism and immigration they really movies offer a very unique means of capturing them when at the hands of the right makers yeah. uh capturing you know unspoken unsaid experiences so yeah, so Lelo was the other one. And then yeah. I was going to say Satyajit Ray's The Big City or Mahanagar, mm -hmm. which I I saw a little later actually uh, in life, like uh, after I saw some of like films like Close Up. So that's why it wasn't, yeah. I don't know if it was formative in that way, but it's maybe my favorite film of all time. <laughs> wow. Some, you know, some days I wake up and I'm like, this is the best film ever made you don't often come across depictions of what like feminism can mean like for a woman in an arranged marriage in sure. India. Like that's not some, an image you immediately associate with like a badass feminist film. Sure. Right. And it's the, it's a beautiful film about finding this woman, finding uh, this something fulfilling and something kind of independent for herself while still grappling with the obligations of motherhood with, uh, you know, marriage, oh, her husband coming to terms with the fact that he has lost his job, but his wife is now the bread earner and he gets kind of, you know, he gets kind of petty, but then he also kind of comes around, uh, you know, they, they realize that they have something between them that's bigger than all of that. And that mm -hmm. becomes kind of the, the heart of the politics of the film. And well and and so you know i mean it's a different layer of empowerment or a different version of empowerment and that storytelling is you know so deep is there a fair amount of empathy of these films in you does that drive or motivate sort of how you look at film because they they tug at you as a person or they they strike some chord what kind of role does does empathy play in in your work 
I think empathy is a very tricky term with cinema. People overuse it. I would say the idea that cinema is an empathy machine is it's tricky because I think that that overvalues what cinema can do. You know, mm. um, movies cannot make you, in my opinion, more empathetic to someone or some community you see on screen. I think that's a bit of a paternalistic way to approach movies. Sure. Um, but I do think that movies can open you up to experiences to worlds that make you realize how you see the world. Right. You know, um, and I often say this, I've, I've said this in things I've written, that people talk about feeling seen on screen. Definitely. I mean, when I talk about the big city, Mahanagar, that's a movie that made me feel seen in the sense that I saw a woman who felt like my mother, you know, who yeah. embodied the feminism that my mother embodies. And it helped me kind of, uh, it was the only time I've seen a love that of the kind that my parents share portrayed yeah. on screen as a movie romance. You know, they had an arranged marriage. They, you know, they, they love each other in a way that I don't often see in movies. So I feel, you know, so I think there is a lot of, um, power in how movies can make you feel like your experience is something worth uh, turning into a narrative is something that is bigger than you is shared by other people. But for me, what's even more valuable is when a film shows me how I see the world and mm -hmm. how either limited or, you know, uh, situated my vision is. Right. And do you yeah. need, once you view these films, the process then of taking them, reflecting upon them, now translating that to uh, an audience of people who are going to now take your words or your thoughts and make their own judgments about that film. Does that feel like it's a, there's a very personal connection now you have both with the film, but also with those who are reading what you have to say about the film? It's tricky with with any kind of writing, I but I would say with criticism, especially when it's really about your personal opinion, right? Criticism boils down to your personal opinion. You have to start with what you feel. Like you have to be very honest and be able to understand what you feel. And that's what you're putting on paper. So people often get mad about reviews and, you right. know, critics, but if you have the platform and if this is your job, then you're also a historian, you know, yeah. a critic is also a historian. You're also someone tasked with contextualizing your reaction within a historical, within a sociocultural context so that it makes sense to whoever reads it. They, yeah. they may not agree with it, but they can understand why you feel a certain way and what that says about what the movie says about the world. Yeah. So it's a tricky, like, process of translation, I would say. And, um, you know, I've, I've been writing for the New York Times uh, for a little over a year now. It's probably the publication where I've had the most like general readers read and respond to my work. Right. Otherwise, I often write for film magazines, which have a little bit of a niche audience. With the New York Times, it's like everyone's reading it. People often will email me and it's like they think my email is a comment section, you know, they just like will email me out the blue and it'll yeah. be like, you know, disagreeing or agreeing with me. I love it though. I mean, they're not always kind, but yeah. I love the idea that 
someone who may not even be like movies may not be on top of their list of hobbies you know they're not like up to date with all the events uh, of the cinema world are maybe being introduced to something or being made to think more deeply about a movie which at the end of the day is a cultural object yeah um by what i've written and that experience has made me think more and more carefully about the reader when i write like again i have to at the end of the day be true to what i think i have to find my voice but again and again i have to remind myself like i'm not writing for myself or people who think like me i'm writing for people of all you know backgrounds and stripes so how can this communicate something like at the end of the day i'm trying to communicate something and i want that to reach the readership it's been such a terrific thrill to have this conversation i'm so grateful for you to join us devika and i hope you'll join us again Oh, thank you so much for having me and uh yeah uh you really made me think very deeply about things that uh you know I I feel like have been on my subconscious but I haven't had to like face up and parse so I'm grateful for that. And I'm so truly grateful to everyone who listens. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you may be finding it and tune in every Monday Tuesday to Ruckus Avenue Radio and on the Dash Radio app. You can find us on social media at mygoodfriend And as always, please stay safe and healthy. Till next time, I'm Abhaydar Nikar. Because every story told is a lesson learned, because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhaydar Nikar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio or wherever you get your podcast. Yo, what's up? This is DMC and you can catch me on Ruckus Avenue Radio. Peace.